0: 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians 11. How to be worthy for the Lord's Supper. I find this passage of Scripture interesting. This, believe it or not, what we're going to be reading here in a few minutes is the earliest account of. Of the Lord's Supper in all of Scripture. Uh, First Corinthians was probably written somewhere around 54 A.D. And that places it before the Gospels. Now, if you think about it, we read the Old Testament or the New Testament and we read the Gospel accounts of the Lord's Supper, right? And so we when Paul, and we'll get to it, when he institutes the Lord's Supper and he says, For um, I, I'm giving to you what I received already. How that you know on the night that he was betrayed? Remember that when Paul says all that, realize he didn't get that from a gospel; he got that from the accounts that either Peter or one of the apostles gave him about that night. The people that were there, and I find that very interesting. The the <clears throat> this letter, this First Corinthians, therefore gives us an important insight into. The the supper as it was celebrated from in the churches from the excuse me <clears throat> from the very earliest of time. I think I got half that loaf stuck in my throat. <clears> throat. Um could you go to my office and get a bottle of water? It's in my computer. Oh, you have one? Okay, okay. You sure? Thanks. I'm sorry about this. I feel like an idiot doing this in front of everybody. Maybe we need more wine and less bread. <clears throat> so the Lord's Supper is a New Testament equivalent of the Jewish Passover. And like the, the Passover, it was celebrated as part of the larger fellowship meal, which we, uh, after which we would call like an ordinary worship service. So they'd have a worship service, then they would have a fellowship meal. And it's important that we read this passage against the backdrop of the Greco-Roman culture of the day. And here's what's important. Don't miss this. There was an emphasis on feasting and communal meals. Meals were commonly held and celebrated in pagan temples or guild halls throughout the city. And so the Corinthians would have been very familiar with communal meals like the ones that Christ instituted on that night together with his disciples. Yet, on the other hand, think about this. They would have associated this meal with the communal meals that they had in Corinth, and they only dined with people of the same social standing or profession or members of the same religious Sect, And so that meal naturally was a segregated meal. You see? The, the supper, as instituted by Jesus, was intended to unite God's people around a common faith and his common promises in the gospel. And it was designed not to divide among racial or economic lines, which is apparently the case in Corinth. You had... Some disciples of Jesus who had been very wealthy before they became disciples and others who were not so much. And the problem, and here's what's important, the problem in Corinth was that they were celebrating the Lord's Supper in such a way that the Lord's Supper had become virtually indistinguishable from the pagan temple or the guild hall meals that they were used to having. Paul rebukes them for this behavior in no uncertain terms. And yet, as he rebukes them, he also addresses them as to the meaning of the Lord's Supper. And so as we go through this passage, there are two critical issues at stake in his instruction. The first, the first critical issue was that it would be difficult to get people from different ethnic groups, different social standing to eat together at all Considering around the Mediterranean, um, th- there was a, a bond of some kind formed. And so the rich did not eat with the poor. Jews did not eat with the Greeks. And no one ate with the Romans. Okay, let's just, let's just put it right there. The second issue is that the Corinthians would quite naturally fall back into their old pagan habits and behave during the celebration of the Lord's Supper just as they had behaved at the guild banquet or at the feast in the temple. These are very real issues that they were dealing with. And so the Lord's Supper was so badly abused by this congregation that, that Paul literally says, I don't think this is doing you any good at all. I think it's for the worst. That's this very very first verse in verse number 17 he says that it's doing more harm than good and so the sacrament of christian unity has become more of a uh, more of contention and only serves to reinforce the divisions rather than knock them down so with that let's stand together and we'll read uh 1 Corinthians 11 beginning in verse number 17 he says this he says but In the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. What's he saying? He's saying, this is not a good thing at all that you guys are getting together in this manner. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Lord, we thank you for this important passage of Scripture that teaches us about the Lord's Supper, its significance, and how that we as believers need to make sure that we set aside social and political and economic differences when we step into this house because, Lord, this, this sanctuary is not filled with a diverse group of people. It's filled with one person in Jesus Christ. In his name, amen. Thank you very much. So right away, we see that there's a distortion of the Lord's Supper in Corinth. They are distorting the, the meaning of the Lord's Supper and he says this, he said, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. And remember the last week when we looked at head coverings, Paul praised the Corinthians. You remember that? He, he praised them because they had sound doctrine, but he has no praise for them at this time because the Lord's Supper, the celebration was doing more harm than good It became, in the vernacular of today, it became toxic. What is so toxic about it is that they become divided rather than united. Look at verse number 18. He said, when you come together as a church, by the way, that's a worship service. When you come together for worship, I hear that there are divisions among you. That word division that Paul uses is schismata. You've heard that term, haven't you? Schismata, schisms. Instead of sharing together in a fellowship and worship, they spent their time in selfish indulgence, arguing and disputing. And these divisions appear to be based upon social standing, rich and poor, and cultural divisions, Jew and Gentile. And so these are the divisions that they're having. Look at verse number 19. He says something very interesting in this verse. He says, they're actually must be divisions or factions among you. Doesn't that sound strange? There must be factions among you. Now, why would he say that? He he knows that the church must endure this kind of division from time to time. And he says that God even has a purpose for it. Look at the, the purpose of the factions. In order that, there's a purpose clause right there, so that, In Greek, we call that henna. In order that, those who are genuine among you must be recognized. And so, are factions and divisions in a church a good thing? Answer is no. But God, in his sovereign power, in his providence, in his overwhelming goodness, uses this bad thing for something good. And so church division is used by the Lord to prove the worth of his faithful saints. Trouble in the church creates a situation in which true spiritual strength and wisdom and leadership can be manifest, can be made known. It is during division that spiritual leadership rises to the top. Um. Division and factions are never good, but when it erupts, and it's going to in a church from time to time, when division and factions erupt, Paul is reminding us that God is still at work. And what is he doing? He is sifting the church. He's weeding out the true from the false, false. and so he's doing his work when there's division in the church. And I want to remind you one more time, division's never good. Factions are never good, but God uses this as an opportunity to weed out the tares, to weed out the false, and for the spiritual leadership, the true spiritual people to rise to the top. God's amazing, isn't he? And what was the cause of division? What was the cause of division? Look at verses 20 and 21. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, and the other gets drunk. So their divisions were following uh, economic and social lines. The wealthy, and and you must understand, they're following the pattern of the day. in In the pagan temples and the trade guilds, the wealthy were given privileged access to the meal While the poor were left wanting altogether, they were acting no different than ordinary society. The wealthy, um, it, it, it may seem a little bit shocking, but if you understand the nature of secular society in those days, at public meals and gatherings like this, there was stratification. Even in the way the food was served, it's not at all uncommon. And, and so the social stratification reflected even in the food that was served in access to the, the, the best of the meal. I was reading a lot about these meals this week in the pagan temples, and uh, actually writers of the time had a lot to say about these meals, and they would talk about how the best portions of meat were given to the wealthiest recipients, and then you had... The, 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 the free people who were not wealthy below that, and they would be given that. And then anybody else that was a slave, not a free person, was kind of just given the dregs. And a lot of times, they didn't get any kind of meat whatsoever. They got just the leftovers. And so the elite and the wealthy and the prominent people were enjoying the very best of all. Indeed, they were indulging to the point that they were getting drunk in a meal to celebrate Unity. And Paul says that the poorest of the poor, those who were on the fringes of things, had nothing and were uh, going hungry and were being humiliated. You're humiliating them when you uh, eat all of this and then you yourself ignore the poor. And so he's, he's horrified and he says, what? And he says, don't you have homes? Don't you people have homes that you can eat in before you come here? That's kind of what he's saying. That's not why we come to church. We're not here for a dinner party. We're here to worship the living and true God is what Paul is trying to get across. The simple ritual meal that Jesus gave us of bread and wine was being lost. That, That meal which was meant to unify was dividing them. Think about the Lord's Supper for just a moment. We're going to get into the institution of it in just a minute. Isn't it simple? Back in the day, the simple meal was they ripped off a piece of bread. We get some mass manufactured little piece of something that's supposed to resemble bread in our cups, right? And um, I'm not going to ask for a raise of hand of who actually opened the the top first. But anyway, we see... Grape juice stains on people's clothes, we'll know what happened, right? But let's look at the institution for just a minute. What's the institution of the Lord's Supper? Notice verse number 23. Let's read this together. And remember, this was written before any of the Gospels. And so Paul says he received it from the Lord. We know that it had to also, from the Lord, could have been from the mouth of Peter, the mouth of John, or somebody like that as well, because he was he was in with the For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I don't have time to go into the actual Passover meal that they're celebrating here. This would have been the third cup. It's very fascinating to study, and I'm sure many of you have. But there's a great simplicity in the Lord's Supper. But I don't want you to be fooled by the simplicity. The Lord's Supper today is a vital part of our worship, and its meaning has been greatly debated in church history. Did you you know that? It's been greatly debated. Central to that debate is the phrase, this is my body, which is for you. That's central to the debate of what's going on in the Lord's Supper. I'll just run through historically real quick, if you don't mind. Uh, The Roman Catholic view of this is my body. is called transubstantiation. They believed that the elements, the bread, as soon as it touched your lips, it became the actual body of Christ. The wine, as soon as it touched your lips, it became the actual blood of Christ. During the Reformation, along came Luther. Luther didn't want to lose the real presence of Christ, but he knew transubstantiation was wrong, and so the Lutherans have... Consubstantiation, in which they say Christ is in and with and under the elements. That's the way they phrase it. And what they are trying to preserve is the real presence of Christ in it. Well, in the Reformation, uh, that idea was rejected, and they have come to the what we would call the reformed evangelical view that says Christ is present symbolically isn't that what Jesus said it's it's a symbol this is my body he didn't literally mean this is my body he meant symbolically this is my body symbolically this is my blood it's Christ is present symbolically but he's also present with us spiritually isn't he there's a real spiritual presence when two or three are gathered together. And I know that passage is about church discipline, but it's just as true that when we're gathered here to worship the living God, he spiritually is here with us, and there's something about that that is extremely important. And he says, this covenant, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. We remember that the blood of the perfect Lamb of God was smeared um, for us. And it was prefigured by the, by the blood of that lamb that was spear, uh, smeared on the doorpost, you remember? And during the Passover and on the lentils. And it came to represent the blood of the lamb of God shed for the salvation of the world. And so every time we drink that cup, we are remembering Jesus Christ Christ You shed your blood for me. It's amazing. I know me. I'm an awful person. And I have no doubt that you're all awful people as well. And Christ died for you. And he died for me. And because of that, and because we eat That bread, he says that we come together spiritually as one spiritual body. We're more than than white and black and Hispanic people. We're more than, than rich and poor and middle class people. We're more than professionals and blue collar people. We are one body in Jesus Christ because of his shed blood. And we celebrate that every time we have the Lord's Supper. The old covenant was ratified repeatedly by the blood of animals offered to men. But the new covenant was ratified once. And praise be to God only once. And so believers drink regularly from the cup in order to remember what Jesus has accomplished for them. Once again, remembrance is not mere mental recall. Bo did it this morning. He had us bow our heads and begin to think about the significance of the Lord's Supper. This Lord's Supper that we celebrate represents the fact that we are shaped by the passion of Jesus Christ It's the cruciform life, what I talked about last week, is true about us. The cross shapes our life, not our political identity, not how much money we make, not where we grew up, not where we live now, none of that shapes our lives. Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross shapes who we are. And when we take the the Lord's Supper, notice what he says in the next verse. He says, for often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And I want to stop right there. I want everybody to look on the screen and read that for just a minute. Because what has become apparent to me in the last few months, I already knew, but it's become so apparent is that we are syncretists. We are saying, yes, I place my hope in Jesus Christ. In reality, we're placing our hope in somebody who gets elected in Washington, D.C. That's our idol. And the Lord's Supper says, Christ, you are enough. My hope is not in blue or red, in a donkey or an elephant. My hope is in the return of Jesus Christ, and that's what we're proclaiming this morning by taking these elements. I shouldn't do this, but I'm going to, I'm going to run a trail. It is sad to me. I have stayed off of social media because Christian after Christian disappoints me in sh- sh- proclaiming to the world who their idols are, When you blast Joe Biden, when you blast um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, when you blast Donald Trump on social media, you are not obeying the Lord Jesus Christ. You are showing people where your trust lies, and it doesn't lie in Jesus Christ. All right, I got to get off of that. I hadn't planned on saying that, but we really have to think this through This has been a rough week for everybody. And I'm telling you, people, our hope is in Jesus Christ. He is enough, isn't He? He's enough. The rich Corinthians have missed that this simple meal of bread and wine isn't like any other meal. It was obscured and lost in the chaos and debauchery of their celebrations, they were taking it for granted. Isn't that easy to do with the worship of God sometimes? To take it for granted? How many just go through the motions when we sing these songs? Man, these wonderful songs, Mike, perfect today for this communion. And when you have steeped your mind and your heart in God's word and you come in here and you sing these hymns that have endured for hundreds of years, it's not going through the motion, it's your heart singing, through the words of somebody else. It's so easy to go through the motions, the same old, same old. And that's what was happening in the supper. It had lost its significance and its power among them under the silliness of their prejudiced divisions that they had. And so now we get to the the difficult part of, of trying to figure out what Paul is exactly saying in verses 27 and 28. He says this, Whoever therefore eats or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, so eat and drink of the cup. Eat the bread and drink the cup. When Paul says that we are not to eat or drink the cup unworthily, he is not suggesting that you are to be morally qualified in order to have a right to the cup. Because I'm going to tell you right now, there is not a one of us that's morally qualified to drink that cup. That's not what he's talking about here. To eat or drink unworthily doesn't mean that you have attained some unspoken standard of holiness before you may come to the table. And I've met in 30 years of ministry, many Christians confused about this. They say, well, I don't take the Lord's Supper because I'm not sure if my heart is right. Well, I can tell you your heart's not right. That's the human condition. God in his grace is trying to set our heart aright, and he's doing it very slowly. To eat or drink unworthily is something completely different. You want to know what it is? This is important for us to understand. The Corinthians were eating unworthily, in that they blatantly mistreated the poor among them, disregarded them. Their actions towards the poor contradicted the self-giving love of Jesus Christ celebrated in the Lord's Supper. Hence, hence, they are despising what Jesus did in the breaking of his body and the shedding of his blood. You see? The supper has been turned upside down so it has become an occasion of selfish grasping instead of selfless giving. Those who behave in such a way are guilty before the God or Lord and suffer the consequences of their actions. And you can read what he says, right? He says, some of you are sick. He says, examine yourselves. Why? For anyone who drinks and eats without discerning the body, the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why some of you are weak and ill and some of you have died. God was taking this very seriously, the way they eat the Lord's Supper. So to partake in a worthy manner is to discern Christ's body and blood in two senses, already described. In order to partake in a worthy manner, first of all, we must understand what is received by faith. And what do we receive by faith? We receive the blood sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The giving of his body for us. At the moment of salvation, you did that, didn't you? Your salvation, whenever you were saved, you have in faith said, Jesus Christ, whether you prayed this or not, this is what your your in your heart you're saying jesus you paid it all for me and i cannot get to heaven without what you did on the cross that's that's one way that we that's one sense in which we eat worthily secondly we must reject those sinful categories which tragically divide god's people which are race social standing wealth political affiliation, whatever you want to throw in there. Failure to discern God's body, and by implication his blood, risk God's judgment as described here by the apostle. The specific sin of the Corinthian congregation was to forget the true significance of the meal. And so they were rushing headlong, I'm sorry, they were just disregarding everybody else, and they were just eating to indulge themselves, consuming all the food, or getting drunk, and that only exacerbated the the, the divisions within uh, the Corinthian church, the congregation. Paul has already told them in chapter number 10 that they all partake of how many loaves? One loaf, right? that they receive one cup. They're, they're all members of Christ's spiritual body, so therefore, they are one even as Christ's body is one. And so, discerning the body applies not only to what's received, Christ Christ's body, but how is received through faith, and we, we must understand that. Well, I'm gonna have to stop, but let me say this. Let me ask. How do you come to church? And how do you Think of one another when you come to church. Where are all the fault lines in this fellowship? Mask, no mask? Black Lives Matter, no Black Lives Matter? Donkey or elephant? Where does pride and elitism disrupt our unity? My opinion, bow to my opinion. I've gotten so many of those kind of emails. They didn't say it like that, but that's what they were saying. if you if you knew what you're talking about, you would bow to my opinion on this matter. Where do our social conventions erupt into our fellowship without thinking? We are in danger if we are not careful of allowing the patterns of the world to so undermine and distort our worship in the church that when we arrive, we are no better at the end. We may be worse off, and our worship is not good for us, but worse for us because of the way that our divisions and our pride and our cultural assumptions are infecting our fellowship and our congregational life. We are to examine ourselves. And with that seriousness, let me ask you, how seriously do you take the worship of God? The Lord's table is a wonderful celebration of what Christ has done. But according to this passage, God takes it very seriously. And so even in in my study, I had to ask myself this week these questions I'm asking you. Where do we do it? Christ died on the cross. He shed his blood so that he could take all these people, and millions and millions of more, and make them one body in Christ. Bo mentioned the temple imagery. We're being made into a temple. When you look at the book of Revelation, particularly look at chapters four and five, it doesn't say it, but do you know what you're looking at? You're looking at one body, you're looking at one temple. He says. There are the apostles and the prophets. When you go and you see the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven, you know what that is? That's all the redeemed of all the ages coming to live with God forever and ever. It is the new temple. And what are we going to be doing? Praising the Lord and worshiping him and singing to him in great, great joy, worthy of is the lamb, worthy is the lamb, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Can we wrap our minds around that and be filled with awe and wonder at Jesus Christ because as much as you know that you're right and he's wrong and she's wrong and he's right, Christ saved them all. I say this, and I'm going to close with this. I've been to some huge conferences in my life, Christian conferences, and one of them in particular, there were people from all different stripes. And this is right at the very beginning of the hipster movement, I remember. And so you had the young guys with the hipster hair and the beards, and you had people walking around in priest robes. You had other people who looked like they rolled out of bed and came in without taking a shower, and, and you had all denominations, but it was the gospel of Jesus Christ and, and that, that um, united them at this conference. And I sat there, and I was thinking to myself, every one of these thousands and thousands of pastors is what they were, think that they're absolutely right in their theology. And I'm sitting here thinking, I know that dude's wrong, and I know that dude's wrong, right? Right? Isn't that what we do? And you know what? What humbled me is to think that Jesus saved all of them. And all of us are wrong somewhere. And yet we're united in Jesus Christ. Allow that just to blow your minds how gracious and kind and merciful our Lord is. And let's just unite together. Look around. Do you love these people? You should. We we're all bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. We're brothers. We're one body. We're one temple. Lord, I thank you for what Jesus did on the cross. Lord, I, I don't deserve it. And I know the people I'm talking to don't deserve it either. None of us do. But in your grace and mercy and kindness, you saved us all. Amazing grace, how sweet to sound, that saved a wretch like me. I pray that the awesome truth of our redemption will just fill our hearts and our souls and our minds That we will not allow temporal, worldly things to divide us, such as our political affiliation, our social strata, blue-collar, white-collar, our race, or any of this stuff. Lord, it's all temporary. One day, we will all be redeemed, singing praises to you in complete unity. And I plead with you, Lord, that it will start right here in this fellowship Today, in Christ's name, amen.